we're still we're still doing some uh, pre-show prep, but it's great to have you on. I just want to say thank you for for doing this. This is this is an honor for me. Well, my pleasure. As a longtime comic fan, it is certainly an honor for me. I've admired your work for well, I'm not going to say how many years, but I'm sure we all know. <laughs> Probably fewer than I've been writing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. I'm I'm the young one of the bunch. I'm I'm only I'm only. It's everybody because I don't know who's uh, talking. Um. I'm Ben. I'm Ben. I'm the host. I'm the youngest guy in the, in the group, but I'm all, I'm also the host. I'm uh I'm 20. I'm 28. I'm so I'm a young guy, <laughs> but I've enjoyed your work immensely. It's uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Know, you. I, I grew up on your stuff, and uh, Neil is my co-host, and uh, Tom is our guest host. Uh, and uh, yeah, I see I see the names have come up now uh, on the screen, so I can see which one's talking by which which lights are lit up. Okay. All right. So you said it was a four-day week for you, Neil? Yeah, it was. It was a five-day week for me. I'd like to know what calendar you're using. I still use seven-day weeks. The week stops on the weekend. Uh, <laughs> stupid Monday holiday always screws me up. My weekend stops. My week stops right when the sun goes down on Friday. Then it's just time to relax. Emerging from the dark humor that was the Beast Unleashed podcast, Steve Megatron, TFG and Mike, Pecan Court Michael, and the Cybertronian correspondent Optimus Solo move on to Transformers Animated with Transformation Animation Podcast. 20 episodes covering all three seasons of the cartoon, the books, and the awesome toy line. We'll also have cast and crew interviews, so get tapped with GCRN's next Transformers franchise podcast. Transformation Animation Podcast, available on iTunes and the web at www.geek.com. GeekCastRadio.com. Get your tap on. Decepticons, transform and rise up. So, uh, we got uh, we got everybody ready. More or less. All right. Well, well, let's get this started. Though, hello and welcome again to Animation Aficionados. Uh, this is a very special episode. We are interviewing Marv Wolfman. Uh, I am your host Ben, and we're joined by my co-host TV's Mister Neil. Well, howdy there, folks. And we have with us uh, as a special uh, guest host, Thomas Revore. Over from 910 Comics, the webcomics community. Yay! And, of course, our very, very special guest, Marv Wolfman. Hello there. All right, well, let's get this started. Uh, I believe you had some questions uh, first, Neil? Sure. Now, Marv, you were the story editor on Transformers Season 3. Uh, how did that come about? I, uh, when I was still in New York, Steve Gerber, uh, who was not only a fellow comic book writer that I knew fairly well, but one of the story editors on G.I. Joe, asked me to write an episode of G.I. Joe. And I did. Uh, uh, first time I had ever done animation. And frankly, I didn't even know what I was doing because I didn't even know what INT or EXT meant on the scripts that they sent me. Um, but I tried to copy the format, and I wrote I wrote one, and then they asked me to do another one. And because I was living in New York, and because um, uh, the company Sunbow was uh, situated in New York, they asked if I'd like to become a producer, working out of the New York office. I said I was moving to California within a month or two, so I couldn't do that. Uh, and they asked, would I like to then? Uh, be a story editor for them, and it turned out to be on the Transformers. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, Transformers, the movie, came out in 86, and you wrote the episode where Optimus Prime comes back to life. Yes. Uh, do you know approximately how quickly they reversed the decision on that, how they made the emergency bring Optimus Prime back to life decision? 
Well, we went to the movie, uh, all of us uh, who were uh, out in the West Coast went together to see it. And I think within a few days of the movie coming out, um, they started to get all the negative mail about Killing Optimus. You have to remember back then, first of all, nobody had ever done shows like this before. Yeah. Um, Transformers and G.I. Joe were unique among animation at the time. On top of that, these were being produced by the advertising agency uh, for Kenner, and they had no concept of the fact that there would be fans out there for this, for this material who cared that much about the individual characters. They saw it as a toy line. Uh, they loved the show, and they really worked hard to make that show work. In fact, I think the reason the show worked as well as it did is that they never uh, had us worry about what toys were going to appear in what week or anything else. They were mostly concerned with the characterization. And their feeling was, if people got into the world of the characters, that was good enough. After that, if they bought the toys, uh, that's great because you'd make them excited. But it wasn't, this week we're going to show this uh, vehicle, then this week we're going to show this one because that's the week it comes out. We never got notes like that. So at any rate, uh, they started to get all this incredible mail, or I should say incredibly negative mail about the death of Optimus Prime. They were canceling a toy line. They didn't see anything uh, as anything special about it, uh, and they were going to be introducing a new toy line. And what happened was they, they saw this, were shocked, and realized, oh, my God, for the first time in the history of animation, people were totally going crazy for this stuff. They really loved it. So since I was the last of the uh, story editors still on staff at the time, everyone else had finished their work, uh, they asked me to please write a two-part episode immediately. And uh, I had, think I had two weeks to do it in. And normally you would write uh, an episode in two to three weeks by itself, let alone two episodes. And I had to feature every single Transformer who had ever been and was coming out in the future. So the following year's toy line. So... Uh, uh, I really had to catch up fast. Wow, wow. And uh, what would you say was more challenging in the sense of writing constraints, uh, television standards and practices or the Comic Code Authority? Uh, well, we didn't have on Transformers or any of those shows the television standards because uh, standard and practices because this was being produced on the outside and then sold into syndication. It wasn't going to networks. So... Um, so uh, we didn't have any of this as a, as a problem. Uh, generally, I would tend to say that the uh, network networks were far more restrictive than the Comic Code ever was. Mm. But mm. that wasn't a problem on uh, G.I. Joe or Transformers. Okay. Uh, when you were working on Transformers, did you ever talk with uh, Simon Furman, or did you try to keep the comic side like seg segregated from the animation side? I never talked to, I don't even know who that person is now. Oh. Um, uh, that wasn't to keep them separate. It's just we were concerned only on the, uh, on the cartoons, and I was probably completely unaware of the comic at the time. Okay, okay. It's, uh, I, I just always wondered that. Uh, what about with uh, G.I. Joe and uh, Larry Hama? Oh, I knew Larry because we both worked at Marvel together. Um, so I certainly knew Larry not only as a fellow writer, but as a friend, I uh, went to see him when he starred in uh, Pacific Overtures, I believe it was, the Broadway show. And uh, I had known Larry fairly well, but we never discussed G.I. Joe. 
Okay, cool. Because you have to understand, this was 1986. By that point, I had been out of Marvel for six years. I had been at DC, so I just didn't get to see almost any of the Marvel guys. Mm, right. Okay, you've been writing... Um, I don't know if you've been writing episodes for cartoons over the years. Uh, television cartoons, I mean. Uh, how, how has writing for cartoons changed from the mid-'80s to today? Well... Because I did so much for Sunbow, I have to say that the restrictions were far greater now than they were then. Wow. We really encouraged to do um, great character material. Now, when you get on a show like Batman or, or the Warner shows of these days, it's a very different situation. I haven't done a lot of uh, straight-on animation for a while. Uh, every so often, I'm offered an episode, but... I haven't found a show that I really felt uh, drawn to, but I have done a couple of animated movies or direct-to-video movies, so uh, I keep my hand in it, just I haven't been doing a lot of the, um, as they say, the uh, straight-on episodes. Okay. Um, here's, a, here's another one for me. Uh, when, how would you compare writing a comic issue to a cartoon episode? Which would you say is more compressed or fleshed out? Uh, comics are more fleshed out, certainly, uh, because you don't have to complete them in one issue. Uh, you can tell the story over a period of time and develop it at the pace that you want. An animated show is 21 minutes, and the act breaks are sacrosanct, which, may, which means you have to end on a cliffhanger at, a, at very specific points. Uh, it's a very different type of process. They're not at all similar. On the other hand, the strength of animation is you get to write about characters that are moving, that uh, can ha that you can allow the actor to be able to bring a lot of the emotion in, that you can rely on an actor to to pull a line and make that make it work. Which, of course, if the reader is reading a comic book and they're not a very good reader, they may not bring the dramatics that you hear in your head when you're writing it. So. Um, both have ups and downs, but they're very, very different. Of all the episodes you've written for, for television, uh, what, what stands out most in your mind? A couple of shows I really loved. It's a show that I was a story editor on, but that's not the reason, uh, called Pocket Dragon Adventures. It was for young kids, and we had complete freedom to do some really weird storylines and fun and silly uh, material, and I'm very, very proud of those. I really liked uh, War Planets an awful lot. Uh, was a uh, three three D show that I worked on for Mainframe as well as Reboot. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Superman when I was the story editor, I had a good time with that. Not on all of it, but um, because standard practices were pretty strict back then. But I really enjoyed doing Superman. Uh, I'm sure there's other stuff that I'm just not thinking of at the moment because. You know, so much of your experience is based on who you're working with, uh, not the show that you're on. Mm. And if you're working with people who know how to deal with you and make the situation work, the stories will be better, the, uh, the, the flow of the story is good, the, all of that sort of comes together. If, however, you're on a show that you really would love, but the people running it uh, insist upon one voice or insist upon certain things that uh, take it away from what I'm capable of doing, uh, then, it's, uh, then it's a lot harder. 
So it really, it really depends upon the people that you're working with. You wrote uh, the episode of Batman the Animated Series, the two-parter, Feet of Clay, the Clayface intro episode. Right. And, uh, Michael Reeves. Yes. And part, he wrote the second. Yes, and uh, what I remember is uh, the pacing of the two parts are, are very different because the first part is like all set up, while the second part is all action. And and uh, one of the questions I have is because of the animation studios involved, the first episode was done by ACOM and the second was d- done by TMS. Was this an intentional decision made by the uh, the cast to uh, to separate it this way, or was this no, like it, an- when we sat down to work out the story? We wanted to build it up slowly. Uh, the beauty of working on the Batman series was the people involved wanted it paced in a very different way than normal animation. They didn't want everything rushed. They, they wanted to take their time and build up a suspense and character. So I got to write uh, the character-driven part of the story, which I thought was really great to do. And Michael, who was really solid on the action stuff, got to do that. So... Uh, for me, it worked out great, uh, but this was purely, in, we sat down together and worked it out, and that's that's what came out of it. Awesome. One of my favorite episodes, by the way. Thank you. Is there anything you ever wanted to adapt to television but couldn't? Um, probably some of my own comics. I would have loved to have, uh, I mean, I did write a Teen Titans animated movie, which probably won't come out because they're not really into that form of the Titans, but it was based a lot closer to, say, my comic and George Perez's comic than it was on the cartoon show, which I also wrote episodes of and loved. Uh, but it was nice to try and do that. Um, I would have loved on the Superman series, where I was the story editor, to uh, be able to write it a little bit older. We, I really wanted to do it more in the style of the uh, Max Fleischer cartoons, and unfortunately, we just couldn't get the okay to do it that way. But that, to me, would have been uh, just a great way of doing Superman. The uh, Teen Titans that, uh, DVD you're talking about, that was for the Judas contract, correct? Correct. The one thing I'm curious about that is, you know, you know, how, how much can you tell us about it? How far did it get along, and was it going to use a very Perez-esque style in the animation? That's what they talked about. It got through a first draft of the script. It needed a very definite second draft. I mean, uh, the first draft was just sort of getting the pacing and the setup working and telling the story and seeing where it was uh, working on that. Uh, so we did a first draft script, and they were talking about doing a, a far more realistic look, not than the cartoon show, which, of course, they were going to do it as, but a very different style than, say, um, the standard Warner, Warner material. It was going to try to move a little bit closer to what uh, George did. But the Titans, I have to assume that, and I don't know this for a fact, so... Um, you know, uh, forgive me if I'm completely wrong, but I have to assume that they just didn't feel that the Titans w- um, would sell enough to justify doing uh, that type of, uh, of uh, uh, cartoon directed video, whereas Superman, Batman, and even Wonder Woman to some degree were so much better known that you, were, you have a much larger built-in audience. In, I'm in- sorry, but I would have loved to have seen it. So would have I, actually. I would have loved to have seen it, but what I've actually read was, and this could have been like conjecture versus actual actual fact, but what I read was that the Wonder Woman animated movie's uh, returns, initial returns, were disappointing, and that's what I heard is what uh, kiboshed the uh, the Judas contract directed DVD. But again, that was just, that might have 
just been fan speculation? Uh, it's very possible. I really don't know the actual reasons. The unfortunate part of it is not much after that, several of the uh, executives that I was working with moved on to other companies, so I never really got, uh, never really got a real answer to it. Um, and after a while, because I, frankly, I would have rather have had a different story as the first Titans movie, so it didn't bother me. It wasn't coming out. I would much rather have that one be the second Titans movie Mm-hmm. And uh, then the first. Of course, that beggars the question, which wouldn't would you have rather had as the first one? Uh, Judas Contract definitely has a lot of backstory which would have gone into it. So. Yeah, it would have, but the problem with Judas Contract uh, is, and it's one of my favorite Titan stories ever, is that the reason it works is that you already know who these characters are, and you already have watched them for a while have a life. And then we throw in this other character in the midst of it and watch as everything starts to disintegrate. Uh, It's very hard to set up a status quo and then bring in the character before you even know and feel the status quo. So I would have rather had a Deathstroke Hive story up front, um, followed by that one, followed by a Trigon story, and that would be my trilogy for the Titans. Interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what I loved was your era of Titans. That, that was one of my favorite eras of reading it. And I say that as a young guy who had to read reprints. <laughs> but uh, now you can go out and get the graphic novel because that <laughs> just came out. I know. I know. And uh, what I loved was uh, one of the uh, one of these past interviews I read of you is how you defined Terra. Oh, what? What? What did I say? Because I get interviewed so much, I don't even. Uh, you called her the anti Kitty Pride. Oh yes, yes, she was definitely the anti Kitty Pride. Um, that always gets a chuckle in any room I'm in. It uh, the whole concept. Uh, that's not a put down of Kitty Pride, but everyone was at that particular point assuming that we were DC's answer to the X Men, and from day one. I mean, you can find interviews with me when the Titans just began, and you will find that me saying it's definitely not the X-Men, it's DC's answer to the Fantastic Four, because I was writing a family book. I wasn't just writing characters who came together. Uh, I worked them out to be a family, and consequently, when we decided to introduce this young girl, I knew immediately everyone would think, oh, we were just ripping off Kitty Pride." So went out of my way to make sure that uh, she would be nothing like Kitty Pride, but you would still like her, knowing that people would be sort of glom onto her as a Kitty Pride type character. We could take it. We could take advantage of their expectations that she would be like this character, knowing full well that she was a murdering little thing. <laughs> I will say when I saw some of the. Uh true terror coming out. I mean, I immediately thought of more of an Eddie Haskell, an evil Eddie Haskell, where <laughs> definitely the sweetness when she wanted to be, but when the true self came out, it was an absolute terror. No, she, uh, there was never a moment of sweetness with the character. It was all her act, because every time I wrote a line, I think once I had her stammer, and suddenly uh, not be aware that they would think of her like that, but uh, other than that one time, Everything was put in there specifically to get them to feel for her and to care about her, including being evil. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, she starts off trying to destroy stuff because that she knows, as do the fans, that they would redeem her, that they would take it as a personal mission to make her better. So if you start that way and you start to act better and you start to look like you're changing, you become closer to them. Mm-hmm. So in as I'm writing all the lines, it was very, very clear. Also, George and I knew up front what the end was, and we were absolutely determined never once to pretend that this character was going to be nice, except to the Titans themselves. Right, right. And which, as a character, I mean, it's you almost never see a character like that uh, in comic medium, simply because it is such a change from what people seem to want to expect in characters, that there is a redeeming value, and there wasn't with the character of Terra. No, she was far worse than Deathstroke, who I never saw as a villain. Um, I saw him as the antagonist. She was crazy. The yeah. character was a total psychopath. Wow, and uh, just something else I have to say that's going to lead to my next question. I have people that I know that have never picked up a pre-crisis Silver Age book before and know nothing of the history that pick up the entire crisis and read it from, uh, from end to end and say it's one of the most magnificent crossovers they've ever read. Mark. Thank you. I, I, I don't, I frankly don't know how anyone could read that without knowing the comics, but uh, since it was written for the Marvel readers to come over to DC for the first time, and very clearly and uh, set up so that hopefully they could understand it. Uh, because back then, you were either a Marvel fan or a DC fan. Um, it's, it's always heartening to hear when people say they were able to read it without having known the DC universe, and it still made sense. I'm not sure I would have understood it, but I really worked hard towards that. And that's leading into the question, could Crisis be successfully adapted into a two-hour animated movie? Absolutely. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh, I already, in a sense, did it. Uh, I wrote a novelization uh, of the crisis, and I use the word novelization very... Um, um, del- I mean, that's what it is, but it's not really a novelization. It's a brand new story taking place during the entire crisis, and you follow the flash from beginning to end. It was published a number of years ago. It's a full novel. And it tells a very linear story. You couldn't do the crisis as it exists because it's not a linear story. And you don't follow any one set of characters. So when I wrote the novel, I made sure that there was a character that you followed and a story that you were following while all the events of the crisis were happening. Interesting. Interesting. That sounds like the best way to do it. Well, it's the only way, as far as I'm concerned, because a movie like a novel has to have a spine. It has to be about something. And crisis is uh, events. It's a lot of uh, separate events that slowly come together into a big one. But it's not the stuff of a movie. So to make it work, I had to turn it into something that would be a movie. Or, in this case, a novel. Awesome. Jumping off of that, uh, of, of existing uh, adapted movies from comics... What do you think is the best made to date? What, best um, comic book movies? Yeah. Uh, loved Dark Knight, loved uh, the first and second Spider-Man, loved the first Iron Man, um, the, the first Superman, um, uh, Kick-Ass. Um, I'm trying to think. There were probably others. 
I, in fact, most of the Marvel movies that have come out in the last year or two have been really good. So um, that they've been they've been pretty special. Okay. Let me insert a question on that because with the specification of the Marvel movies, do you believe that with Marvel having more control over it as opposed to say uh, Sony with the Spider-Man movies, that it's given them a little added impetus and flexibility to make the movies? I don't know because movies are so weirdly made anyway. The first two Spider-Man movies were great. And it was, I think, interference that hurt the third one. And it wasn't interference by Sony. So um, you have somebody in the case of Spider-Man, uh, Sam Raimi, who utterly loved that character. And it's very clear how much he loved the character. So uh, I don't know. Uh, to be honest, that, that really shocks me that they are as good as they are because the Mar I never thought a lot of those Marvel characters could be adapted easily into a movie. Yeah, they, the, the way I read it was uh, Venom was practically forced on Raimi because Raimi was actually in interviews saying that he thought Venom was one of the worst concepts in the mythos. Well, I don't, you know, uh, I don't know if, uh, uh, if he thought that or not. Uh, but certainly having spoken with Sam before, long before he ever did Spider-Man, um, I mean, de a decade before he did Spider-Man, he was a huge Spider-Man fan. So when you talk about being a fan of something, he probably was a fan of that, of the stuff from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and may not have been a fan of the stuff from the 90s, because he may never have read it. And certainly by that point, he was a professional and had different viewpoints. So I don't think it's fair, even if he says he hated it, to think of it the same way. The other stuff was the stuff he loved as a kid, and it's very clear that that's what he wanted to do. It was probably a mistake upon the people who forced him to do Venom, knowing he didn't care for the character. Right. But, uh, I, I don't think Venom was the problem in that movie. <laughs> I actually agree there. I actually think he had... The perspective to handle Venom in a different way, but that's a that's yeah. another subject. There was just too many characters in that, and they were trying to do too much, and um, it got overwhelmed. Uh, but you know, the first two are brilliant, and the second one certainly is one is one of the three best superhero movies ever made. Definitely, with Dark Knight being another one, and I'm, I won't even say what the third is because my mind changes. <laughs> Jumping off of uh, the movie topic yet again, uh, you had a run-in with Marvel over Blade. In spite of that, though, what did you think of the Blade movie? Really liked the first one. Really, really thought that was excellent. Uh, uh, what I loved about the first Blade movie was that you had two fairly attractive actors that were playing side-by-side, -side and they didn't have a writer trying to force a romance between the two. I thought that was kind of bold. Which two? Uh, Blade and the Doctor. Oh, um... Uh... The first one worked because I think it was a really solid uh, vampire story and a real solid Blade story. So, uh, and I thought that they were all uh, they were all moving on all cylinders in that one, firing on all cylinders. So, uh, I thought that was just great. Um, I had some problems with the other two, but I don't think any of them were dreadful. I just don't think they were all good Blade movies. Mm. The second one, Blade seemed to get kind of lost in the shuffle, in my opinion. They didn't focus enough on his character and just too much going on. Yeah, it was it was a good vampire uh, movie, but I don't think it was a good Blade movie. Hmm. Interesting. 
Interesting. I never I never heard anyone describe Blade mo- Blade as a vampire movie before, but I think that actually fits very well with what it is. It's a... Well, it is a, you know. Uh... <laughs> well, when I hear vampire movie, I picture I picture Bela Lugosi. Oh, uh, well. Thank you for not saying Twilight. This is, this is the 21st century. Get up to date, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I said I'm 28, but I'm still, I, 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 watch, old, I watch old shit. Okay. <laughs> Neil, you had one more? Uh, I have two more. I'm going to save one for the very end, though. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, of all the characters that you've ever made or written for, who is your favorite? I, re- I love writing uh, Superman, and I really love writing Spider-Man. Both of those. Superman's probably my favorite character to work on. Uh, always has been. Um, so, you know, um, because that's what I go back to as a kid, and that's the one that influenced me. So consequently, it's the one that I think about uh, as much uh, as, say, I think Sam thought about Spider-Man. I love writing Spider-Man. Of my own characters, I never really talk about that because mm. uh, uh, they all uh, are special in one way or another to me, even the ones that don't work that well. Mm. I will say it's kind of strange hearing you mention those two characters as your favorite to write for outside of your own creations. Because I've never seen two characters that, to me, are so opposed. Superman being the Ubermensch above everybody else, and Peter Parker being the most human of all the characters in comics. I think it's because uh, Superman, when when written correctly, is human. And a lot of people miss it. Uh, Spider, I, They're not that far apart in many ways. You approach the stories differently, but... Since my favorite time period on Superman is from 1938 to 1941, um, no, I was not alive at the time. I just <laughs> had to read them in uh, uh, after I grew up. But I like that rough type of Superman, and the Spider-Man stories, certainly uh, in the first couple of years, were much closer in that vein than um, you you think. So there's a there's great similarity. They're written completely differently, but there's a great similarity in the heart of the material. I agree. I mean, coming back from a period that you know, the early 70s, uh, the back stories of the private life of Clark Kent was one of the things that I always enjoyed more than the regular Superman stories because it was more on the meek and mild personality, the true person to me who was behind Superman rather than the costume. Yeah, it, it's he's a great character, and I'm glad to see that they're trying to go back to their rough style. Hmm. All right, but speaking about the characters with similarities, here's one. Uh, as someone who wrote for both G1 and Beast Wars, how would you define the differences between Primal and Prime? Uh, you know, uh, I, I, the Beast Wars material that I did was in conjunction with another writer, my friend Craig Miller. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't have a lot of feeling about that particular series because I thought it was pretty badly animated. Um, I much preferred Beast Machines, which I actually helped create and wrote the original Bible on. Um, so it's a very, very different feeling. Uh, I don't have a great recollection of the Beast Wars stuff. because I only did, you know... Uh, half of one episode. Yes. But Beast Machines was something that I cared about and developed and wrote a number of episodes for. Yes. How, since you were the one who wrote the original treatise for Beast Machines, how heavy was your influence on, on having the 
semi-mystical uh, feel around it with uh, Primal and the Oracle? Uh, God, going back, <laughs> it's hard to remember some of it. Um, the basic storyline dealing with uh, the backgrounds of, of Cybertron and what it was all about and how it all reflected on the characters later on is what I brought to it. I was trying to create uh, through the spark um, some sort of a mystical feeling. I have to be honest, I did not watch a lot of the episodes after they came out, so I'm not as up. I don't remember. Um, you know, I wrote my I wrote my episodes fairly early on, and then uh, just was not part of the show after that. I will say, I mean, using the spark, I mean, I always thought it as an analogy to the soul, and that, to me, gave the characters more of a human aspect, was having that link between them and us. I, wa I wanted, as, because I remember dealing with the, uh, the, uh, the people of Sunbow, uh, I wanted these characters not to just be automatons. It was very important to me that uh, they have emotions and feelings beyond the fact that they were robots. Um, I go back far enough that I remembered seeing some of the original Transformers from Japan long before there was a cartoon show, um, that I was aware of at least, uh, where they still had little people who rode inside them. Mm -hmm. The early toys actually had that. They were uh, a spinoff back from the Micronaut toys, if I remember correctly. Not the Micronauts, there were four different uh, Japanese shows put together, characters from four separate shows. I don't think Micronauts was one of them, but four different ones. Uh, the, the, I'm actually meaning the toys, but uh, sorry. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I was seeing a lot of that stuff in the early 70s because I lived in a town in New York called Flushing, which had a, uh, it had a Japanese-language uh, UHF TV station. And I was watching a lot of the Japanese animation long before we ever knew there was a name like anime. Uh, it was it was subtitled in English, but it, because it was on UHF, um, which was a very low bandwidth uh, series of channels, you could only see it in that town. So I was watching a lot of that material early on, and I was also, because it was a heavy Japanese population, seeing all the toys. And I was buying a lot of the robots long before I knew where they came from, because they were just that cool. Um, but I don't remember everything that came later on. With the, uh, certainly after I finished my run on Beast Machines, I just didn't follow what they did with it, because I knew that they were going to move away from my original idea in certain places. And unfortunately, for some reason, I cannot find my original Bible that had it all broken down. Uh, but that's the one that um, Kenner Hasbro took and we turned into the show. Uh, if I can jump in here really quick. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I had a lot of these toys. Uh, even though the early Transformers didn't come with the little people that were inside, they still had the little compartments. Yeah. Yeah. And that just confused the hell out of me when I was eight. <laughs> like clearly something goes in there, but it didn't come with it. All the, all the Japanese cartoon shows that I was watching back in the 70s um, were always about people fit, fitting inside the robots. They were, they were essentially tanks. Yeah. Uh, and they weren't on their, they didn't have their own personality. 
the strength of what they did with the Transformers was turn them into their own beings. And I thought that, that was a brilliant move. But that's not the way it was in Japan. Okay. Uh, you had a question, uh, Tom? Well, yeah. Before I go into my good set of questions, let me go ahead and ask a few of the standard background questions for people who don't know who you are. Um, let me go ahead and ask you first. That's why Wikipedia exists. <laughs> well, that's a good thing because that's where I got some of them. And the others up from your blog over at marvwolfman.com. Yes. I'll give you a plug over there. But let's go ahead and start off by um, how did you get your start writing for comics? And uh, what sort of training did you have for that? Um, none. Uh, the best I could say is that I was a, a comics fan. And I published my own fan magazines uh, called Fanzines back then. Um, and I would send them out and I uh, would do original stories. Sometimes they were prose stories, sometimes they were comic stories, sometimes they were articles. They were all different things that I did. And um, some of the professionals, because I'd always mail it to them, uh, liked what I was trying to write, even though it was still very early on, and gave me a chance. So that's how I got started. It sounds a lot like how uh, Roy Thomas got started back with his uh, alter ego as well. Exactly the same way, yeah. Um, speaking about which, because he was one of your predecessors as the editor-in-chief of Marvel, uh, what were the circumstances that led you to taking the position of editor-in-chief at Marvel? Uh, Roy was uh, leaving. Uh, he wanted to. He had hired me as the assistant editor, and... He, uh, an, an editor of the, of the black and white Marvel magazines, uh, which is what I, uh, which is what I gra graduated to very quickly because that's why I was hired away from, uh, Warren to do. And, um, when Roy left, he brought in a different, another editor who lasted about six, eight months. And then, uh, he was leaving and then, uh, since I was already an editor on on the magazine line, I just moved over. Okay. Um, now let's go into the, what I call the fun questions, uh, because you wrote Tomb of Dracula back in the early 70s for Marvel. Yes. Um, and back then, the Comics Code Authority was, of course, keeping a very tight watch on comics. Uh, how would you say it was writing a horror comic back then under their auspices as opposed to writing something like this now? Um. I always had some problems with the comics code, but I was very aware of what what I could get away with and what I couldn't. And sometimes I would throw an extra extra stuff in there specifically for them to uh, to kill that, so I could get other stuff in. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I'd make something so outrageous that they would go there and leave the the tamer material in, but the tamer stuff would have been pointed out otherwise. Um, I didn't have a problem, a major problem with the comics code because I again I did know what they would accept, but I did but I did keep pushing it as absolutely as much as I could. Yeah, I remember some of the stories of uh, when Jim Steranko was writing uh, Nick Fury Agent of Shield and some of the things that he got away with by doing basically the same trick, have something outrageous so you could sneak some of the other stuff in off the side. Yeah, uh, you do that uh, there were so many different things that we did, but primarily what you tried to do was tell a good story. And the best, the best thing I could say about the Comics Code is that they were very aware that, the, um, that we were doing material for um, 
a different age group than Spider-Man. And they said that up front. So they, how do I put it? They, they let us get away with things that they wouldn't have let us do otherwise. Um, because even they said to me, and I'm not phrasing this well, I'm sorry, but they said to me that uh, the concept of Tomb of Dracula would tell parents immediately that it was going to be a, a horror comic and more violent so that it would not be for kids. And because of that, we were, we were able to get away uh, with a lot more material than uh, we would have been had, had it been a different type of a, um, um, a, a comic. So I didn't have the problems that Jim did because his was in the Marvel Universe. Uh, they allowed us to do a little bit further. They still fought me all the time. I mean, it's not like uh, they didn't argue about stuff every single issue, but I, w I kept trying to push the, uh, the boundaries, so naturally they were, they were trying to push back. But I would say I got about 90% of what I thought I could get. Uh, it was a pretty strict time, so um, you, you, you just have to go with it. And uh, since I'm still talking about the Comics Court Authority, uh, I remember reading something about uh, the Comics Court Authority and you being responsible for DC putting creators' names, artists uh, and writers' names in comics. Yeah, that, that's a silly story. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's totally true, but it's totally silly. It's one of my favorites. In that, uh, because of my name, uh, Jerry Conway used to write the little interstitial pages on the DC mystery books. The one, it'd be a page in between each story told by the host of the comic, whether it was Cain, Abel, the Three Witches, or whoever. And Jerry wrote a lot of those things. And knowing that I had written the following story, he said the uh, following story was written, was told to me by a wandering wolfman. Um, and the comics code saw that and rejected it. But the book had already been sent out. So DC had to convince, and I mean, it was simple for them to convince, because it was true, that that was actually my name and not just trying to get in a, a werewolf reference. And they insisted that if it was my name, my name had to be in the credits uh, so that people would know it wasn't a monster, it was a real person. <laughs> so um, once I got a credit, everyone wanted one after that. So that's, that's what happened. <laughs> so as I say, it's totally a silly story, but it's absolutely true. <laughs> well, after the silly story, let's put you on the spot a little bit. Because with your long career in comics, um, you've worked with a number of artists of varying talents over the years. Uh, let's start off by asking, uh, did you change the way that you wrote depending upon the artist? And who was your favorite artist to work with and why? Well, I'll answer one of those. <laughs> um, answer is yes, you change all the time depending on who the artist is because every artist is different. Every artist has a different interest. They have a different approach. They have a different way of telling their stories. Some pe I would always ask an artist what they liked, what they didn't like to draw, and I would try to make them part of the, uh, the process as opposed to the way it had been in the past, which was the writer would write a script, hand it off to the artist, and that's the last the writer had any connection with the art. Uh, I believe that when you can... You, the writer and the artist should be working together. So, yeah, I would I, I would very definitely say to an artist, 
what would you like to draw, what do you like, what, what are your interests, and then try to compose stories using some of that when, when it could work out. Very often I don't know who the artist is, and then I just write it the way I feel the individual story should be done. But if I do know who the artist is, I will try to make, I will put in this type of material that they're good at. Okay. Um, which is your favorite method of working? I mean, because the writing style of the Marvel style seems rather fluid to give the artist a lot more freedom as opposed to this uh, strict scripting over an animation. Do you have a preference as to the way that you write? Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting a, <laughs> I'm hanging up here. Uh, let me just hang up. Um, um, I, my preference, frankly, is the um, plot style uh, for comics. You can't do that in animation because it's a very different uh, process. I prefer that for comics, though, because you, if you're working with the right artist who could tell a story, they're adding so much. And when you see the actual artwork, you can ignore great deals of it when it's when they are telling the story and you could concentrate on character and if they miss the story then you can make sure in your dialogue that you're telling you're telling what needs to be there but when you see the artwork in front of you it does have more fluidity as far as i'm concerned i think you get a better product out of it but not every artist is comfortable or even likes doing it that way a lot of them want very clear instructions as to what you want drawn. They don't want to have to think about that in terms of storytelling. So when you're working with the right people, you do it that way. When you're working with other type of people who don't want that or you don't know who they are, it's best to do it script style. Okay. But animation can't be done that way under any circumstances. Now over on your site, you have an excellent series of columns over in your what the section. Uh, which I truly appreciate seeing some of the questions from the other creators that you get to ask them to get draw back the curtain and look to see how things are done over. Right. But in one of the columns, you had the question of uh, who do you think is buying comics? And the answer that you gave or was given to you was uh, 45-year-old white guys. Now, as a 45-year-old white guy myself, <laughs> um, one of the publisher, one of the major published comic publishing companies now seems to have taken a bit of an antagonistic and uh, some may even say insulting attitude towards we older fans. Uh, do you think that this is a helpful or harmful towards business as a whole? Oh, let's, let's say what you're actually talking about uh, rather than being vague. You, you have a problem with the fact that I think DC is trying to appeal to new, to new people. Not so much that. Um, I mean, I was trying to be a little vague because I didn't want to put you too much on the spot. But um, I've seen a number of panels at various conventions where the current co-publisher, Dan DiDio, is. And he seems to almost take delight in being antagonistic towards us older fans. Well, first of all... And not so much to bring in new readers, but just kind of slough us, slough us off, whether ever, well, whatever our opinions. If you know Dan at all, you, you, you would know very quickly that he that he loves playing games like that. He's an older fan himself. Um, and I think he just has a great deal of uh, fun playing that game and getting people riled up and all of that because the worst thing that can happen in a comic is when people are bored. And if he can get you riled up, it means that you're going to get uh, involved with something. I wouldn't take what he's saying as negative. 
in terms of uh, the older fan because he's fully aware of what the market is is like. On the other hand, Dan is absolutely correct. You know, I, I hate to say it, I'm older than you, obviously, but we're all going to die off. Uh, or we're going to get so involved with having to pay other type bills that we're just not going to have the resources to buy as many comics as we used to. This happens all the time. Uh, as you get older, your money goes to different places. So if you, you know, comics used to be aimed at the 8 to 12 year old audience, or 7 to 12. And if you can hook somebody as a young fan, they will stay with comics. Uh, providing you keep giving them comics that grow with them. So in the beginning, they may be reading a kid's comic, and then they may read uh, a teenage comic, and then maybe they'll start reading the superhero stuff, and then maybe they'll go on to the uh, Vertigo material or whatever else. But if you don't get those younger fans, all you will see is the older fans dying off. And I don't mean just actually dying, though that's... Uh, uh, the possibility and unfortunately the truth anyway, I'm talking about their involvement with comics will be dying off with time because they have to be involved with other things that are calling their attention. So Dan is absolutely correct. You have to cater and you have to start bringing in new fans. Otherwise, you will only keep losing people. And to do it any other way would be a major mistake. Okay, uh, this actually leads into a question I have. Uh, what would you say shapes uh, a younger person's expectations of what is in a comic? Uh, animated properties or the big budget movies? Uh, I think probably the animated stuff more uh, has a little bit closer appeal to uh, uh, the younger fans who are then looking at the comics. They're also a little bit closer in many cases to the comic. Um, because they continued, not because they're better or worse, just that they can, uh, an animated series continues for a number of episodes, but a movie is over in two hours, and right, there right. may not be another one for a few years. So um, I think the animated cartoons a little bit more, but comics have to find a way to be completely different from all of them. Otherwise, why buy the comic and not just watch the animated cartoon? Right. Well, I think I'm going to wrap up my series of questions with uh, the fact that the last article I saw over on your site was dated 2004. Are we going to see any new products over there or new articles? Um, well, I, I haven't posted a lot lately. I have posted on my blog more recently than that. I think a year ago I posted <laughs> on the blog. I haven't put up any new articles only because the hat, uh, there hasn't been anything that I thought of deserved it at the particular time. Everything up there is fine. Um, I may, with time, I spend a lot more time um, on the Facebook material, so I'm always talking about what I'm working on on, face on Facebook. And that's just Mark Wolfman uh, on Facebook. So um, uh, for people who want to see what I'm doing, that's where it is. Eventually, I'll post some other stuff on the on the website. It's just that it takes an awful lot of time, and quite frankly, I've been really busy. I could, yeah, I okay, and uh, Neil, you had you had one question left over. Uh yeah. Going back to Transformers, uh, your thoughts: Is Rodimus Prime a garbage truck or a Winnebago? <laughs> <laughs> Is Optimus Prime a garbage? Rod truck? Rodimus. Oh, Rodimus! Oh God! 
I have no idea. I'm sorry. <laughs> I say garbage truck. Neil says Winnebago. Um, maybe a cross between the two then. I don't. I don't know. Okay. See, we asked Flint Dilly this question too. Well, Flint was a lot more. Flint re- retains a lot more memory of that because he was on it for many seasons, and uh, I tend to forget some of that stuff. Well, he said that he said a futuristic El Camino with a trailer. Yeah, that, I don't know about that. Flint is great. <laughs> oh, he was, he was, and wow, it's just, it's just like Sunbow seems to like pick up people with awesome names. Yeah, well, uh, Flint, uh, you know, Flint has a has a very famous history uh, with he and his family. So, um, you know, uh, it's it's great because they they are the ones responsible for Buck Rogers. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, but, you know, like I said, it's just amazing. You know, Marv Wolfman, Flint Dilly, Buzz Dixon, Vince DiCola. These are awesomely named people. My parents named me just Ben. <laughs> well, uh, what can I say? <laughs> I, I had no choice that was given to me, so I can't take any credit. If I may, I mean, let me ask one final question for me. Yeah. Uh, because you talked about, uh, I mean, you're being busy of now, of course, which I expect. Can you tell us what sort of projects you're working on now? Uh, well, I'm working on an animated cartoon for China, uh, a movie, and I'm writing uh, a series of video games. Uh, the first one, the only one I could mention because it was just announced, and if you are on my Facebook page, you know this, um, <laughs> is Planetside. I'm writing um, uh, a series of short stories. They just started to go online this week. Uh, for Sony, for uh, a game called Planetside 2, but I'm writing the short story backgrounds for it. Okay. On another game, I'm writing the uh, the uh, cinematics and yet a different game I'm working on, um, uh, the basic storyline. Uh, beyond that, I've been doing several comics. That's something I've been noticing is a lot of a lot of you guys from back then, it's like uh, Flint Dilly wrote a lot of video games as well, and Paul Dini, of course, wrote uh, Batman Arkham uh, Asylum and Bar- Batman Arkham City coming out next week yes is is so do you think it's sort of like a natural progression that you're all moving out into video games well uh flint is the one who got me into video games uh as a writer not as a uh, fan of it um he was uh really into it a long time before anyone else he was very much involved with um uh writing all sorts of games and i learned how to he taught me how to write so uh you know, it, it's what can I say? Uh, if we were following stuff, it's because he's the one who set it up in the first place. Uh, as far as Paul, I think he was a really good move to go to for for that. Video games are just a lot of fun, and what they're looking for writers who know what they're doing and who also know video games. And there aren't a lot of writers who who actually play video games. Fortunately, I do. So mm-hmm. um, you know, always have. So uh, it, it was pretty pretty easy for me to just move into there. Okay. Uh, on that vein, favorite video game in the last couple of years? Oh, gosh. Uh, I could go between Portal, um, Uncharted, God of War, uh, Call of Duty, the uh, Modern Warfare ones. That's, those are the ones I prefer. Uh, all sorts of stuff like that. Hmm. Portal, great game. Uh, it's brilliant. Brilliant. I'm, working, I'm playing Portal 2 now. <laughs> some of some of the best humor I've seen in a video game in a long time. Uh, those guys really do a great job. 
Yeah. It, uh, Neil, you got any last final questions for our guest? Uh, I got nothing. All right. Uh, Tom? I'm questioned out. I think I've heard what I wanted to hear, and I appreciate the answers. All right, uh, Marv, uh, it was great having you with us. Uh, this was this is one of our uh, favorite interviews so far. Uh, uh-huh. uh, so uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, you listened to our uh, Marv Wolfman interview. Uh, I am your host, Ben. And TV Special Neil. And I'm Thomas Revore from 910comics.com. That's 910cmx.com. You take care. All right, and uh, good night, guys. Good night.